Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to Bob and Yart Live. It's Monday. So instead of going back to a broadcast classic, we're going and listening to an old Bob and Yart Bible study. This is 1 Kings chapter 1. I'm planning on leading a study through 1 Kings myself at Agape Kingdom Fellowship in Denver. And so in preparation, one of the things I did was listen through an old Bob and Yart study. It was so much fun that I knew I had to play it on air for you guys. If you want to get the entire study, it is available on kgov.com slash store. Click on the Old Testament Bible studies and you will find it there. It is such a valuable resource. Highly recommend. But now part one of that great study series. Let's jump right into it. Please turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1 and verse 1. We're beginning a brand new book study, verse by verse, through the books of the Bible, Lord willing. If uh, he does not return soon, or if I live long enough, we'll complete all the books of the Bible from a mid-Acts dispensational perspective. Now, this book of Kings will bring us from the end of David's reign, in fact, the end of his earthly life, to the reign of his son Solomon, and then to a terrible division of their united kingdom of Israel into two, the northern and southern kingdoms, that is, Israel and Judah down south. And it brings us through subsequent kings and the ministry of Elijah, and to the death of wicked King Ahab. You'll remember his wife Jezebel. The Bible speaks of how she would make up her face to, not that makeup is sinful, but she would do that to lure men in an immoral way. And we'll cover at that point the uh, archaeologists who have excavated Ahab's palace. And in the palace, they find the royal bedchamber in ruins, and in the ruins, they find an artifact of an ancient, we're talking about 2,800 years old or so, a makeup kit. And in the makeup kit, they find the remnants of, the, of actual makeup so that we today know the color of the rouge that Jezebel put on her face in rebellion against God. That's the kind of record that actual history leaves behind, whereas fantasy, like in the Book of Mormon, does not leave a historical record because it was fabricated. So the Bible has been confirmed in countless ways by the spade of the archaeologist, the study of the historian, the anthropologist, and the archaeologist. Did I say archaeologist twice? <laughs> the, uh, the study of the historian and the anthropologist. Now, 1 Kings follows the books of First and Second Samuel in their canonical order and chronologically. As we've discussed in the past, the books of the Roman Catholic Bible do not all match the books of the Hebrew Bible, speaking of the Old Testament. I'd just like to remind you guys about that for a moment. Uh, that's unfortunate. It's sinful because 
the New Testament tells us in the book of Romans chapter 3 that the oracles of God, that is, the scriptures, were entrusted to the Jews. So for the Catholics to take books and put them in the Old Testament, books that were never recognized by the nation of Israel as part of their inspired canon, that is sinful, that's humanist. And those books, uh, some of them have interesting history, some of them are fanciful, they have false doctrine in them, uh, incorrect history, whereas the Bible is God's word and can be trusted. And so those other books lead to false teaching, including, for example, the Catholic practice of thinking that they can pray for the dead, because that's found in those apocryphal books, for example. Now, the Protestant Old Testament, on the other hand, and so here we are in Kings, smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. We have 39 books as compared to the Catholics' 46 books. Uh, our Old Testament contains the exact same Hebrew Old Testament as does the, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Now, why is that important? Well, I already gave one reason. Another reason is when Jesus was in a synagogue and he opens a scroll and he begins to read, we want to know that the scriptures that he was reading are the scriptures that we read. We want to know that because he acknowledged the existence of the body of work, the scriptures, and he said that these speak of me. So it's very important that our Old Testament matches the Hebrew Scriptures, which it does. There are differences in presentation, not in content, but in presentation. For example, the 12 minor prophets that end our Old Testament, the 12 shorter books, we call them minor because they're shorter, and also because in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're counted as one book. The Hebrew Old Testament has 24 books. We have 39. Plus the New Testament 27 gives us our 66 books of the Bible. So, but why would the Jews have 24? Well, they take 12 and they present them as one book. Then also the books that we split originally were one book. First and second Samuel was one book. First and second Kings was one book. First and Second Chronicles was one book. So that when these were translated for use in the major public libraries, uh, long scrolls are very difficult to reproduce, to check out of the library. Somebody checks it out, you only got one person reading this book. So Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles were each split into two books at that time which was about 100, 150 B.C. And so for the most part, most of the Bibles of the world now follow that, uh, that practice of splitting those books. Is that sinful or wrong? I don't believe so. When the Bible was originally written, uh, there were no lowercase letters. Everything was uppercase. Frequently, there were no spaces between the words. There was no punctuation. And when you look at older texts, it's amazed at how brilliant ancient men were 
that they were able to read these things. How does the nation of Israel read their scriptures? Because God created us in his image and they were not grunting cavemen, they were brilliant. So, the books of Samuel take us from the period of the Judges, if you remember, the five books of Moses, then Judges, right? Takes us from the centuries of the Judges into the period of Israel's kingdom, with the birth of Samuel, and then the anointing of Saul, and then his destruction, and then the anointing of David, and then through David's ministry, which had highlights, but terribly evil uh, crimes and sins that David committed, which eventually led to the destruction of his family and of his nation, which split in two in basically a, a civil war. So that's the books of Samuel, bring us through that period to late in David's reign and in his life. In the very last chapter of 2 Samuel, David is offered a choice, and this choice goes to then the foundation of salvation in the scriptures and Israel's role leading to the New Testament and Christ's crucifixion. David is offered a choice through the prophet. Should Israel be punished with seven years of famine or with three months at the hands of your enemies, like in a military defeat, or three days of a plague from heaven. That's the idea. And David says, I will choose the plague because I know that God is merciful. Time is not merciful. Famines are not merciful. Our enemies are not merciful. But God, even in his judgment, can be merciful. So I pick that. And then the plague started. It was horrific. But David was moved to sacrifice to the Lord, not just anywhere, but on a certain piece of land owned by Ornan the Jebusite in Jerusalem on a hill called Mount Moriah. And David went to him and said, I have to offer to the Lord right here. And he's like, right here? Right here. Right on my threshing floor? I mean, that's where I do all my work. I have to do it right here. And Ornan said, well, you're the king. You know, go ahead. I have to buy the land. I can't do this on someone else's land. I have to buy the land. So David bought the land and sacrificed to the Lord, and the punishment from God stopped right then. And why was this? Because that was a picture of Christ being crucified, sacrificed on that land. For that land was Mount Moriah. And the Bible tells us that David's son Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, on the land that his father David bought from Ornan the Jebusite. So that is exactly where the story ends at the end of Samuel, 2 Samuel. Now we come into 1 Kings. And if you think of the patriarch Jacob... David also had many sons and one daughter each that we know of. And like with Jacob's sons, there was terrible sin and conflict among David's sons. There was a parallel. And like with Jacob, 
David's oldest son, Amnon, committed a horrific sin of sexual immorality within his own family. Remember, Reuben did the same thing. The firstborn of Jacob, Reuben, committed that terrible sin. And so he was disqualified from getting the inheritance of the firstborn and eventually the messianic blessing of the throne. The tribe of Reuben lost out because of that sin. And Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. David's firstborn, Amnon, did something similar, not with his father's wife or concubine, but with his sister. And as a result of this, Amnon was killed by Absalom. Absalom eventually rebels against his father, and Absalom is killed in a battle as a result of that rebellion. The destruction that comes to David's family because of his own sin of murder and adultery is unspeakable. To imagine these things happening in your own family is so devastating, yet they did. They happened in David's family. Yet God redeemed David and loved David because David, unlike Saul, David was sorry. So let's join the story in progress in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him because he could not get warm. Now this is a peculiar story to open this historical book with, but it helps us understand the amazing Old Testament book called the Song of Songs. It's also called the Canticle of Canticles. Like the book of Job, that book of songs, Job is the oldest book in the Bible, the book of songs is also written like Job as a dramatic presentation. It's written like the dialogue of a play and in poetry. There's something that uh, the book of the Song of Songs has that many people miss when they read it. They think that, you know, Solomon is this wonderful man who this woman, the Shulamite, desires, and her love is for him, and she longs for him, but that's not the case at all. Solomon, by that time, was a wicked ruler with a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines in complete rebellion against God, violating his command for the kings that God gave to Moses in Deuteronomy. And as God said, if you have a lot of wives, you're going to start worshiping the gods of your wives. And that's what Solomon did, and he built them altars to these false idols, Molech and so on. And so the Song of Songs, you think, well, isn't it this beautiful uh, romance? And really, the young woman in the romance, if you notice, this powerful man wants her, but she dreams of another who's not there. And she dreams of him, and when she... She almost, in each, it's actually dream sequences. That's what a lot of people miss. And in each dream sequence, she's just about to be embraced by the one she loves, who is to typify God to Israel. Israel is married to God, but they're in rebellion. 
And so just as they're about to embrace, he disappears. So she's waiting for him and he comes to the door and he just gets his hand on the doorknob and he about to open the door and it, he disappears. <laughs> and it keeps happening. And if you've had a lot of dreams that you could remember, that's very reminiscent of dreams. So it was Solomon who wanted this woman that he should not take. And this woman was being faithful to her true love, which represents God. And so this story that opens up 1 Kings, although it's a peculiar historical account, it helps us understand the Song of Songs. By the way, both Job and the Song of Songs is not only a, a drama written as the dialogue of a play, but also in poetry. And that is a skill of the ancient world that for the most part we have lost as we've devolved. Uh, our intelligence, we're not as smart as Adam and Eve were, as the ancients were, the patriarchs. And it, our intelligence has been diminishing. And so as was commonly done, these great epics would be written, whether to honor God or dishonor him. I'm talking about the raw ability of uh, humans, how we were created with talents. And they wrote them in poetry. Today, our poetry in comparison is worse than pathetic. It's how I feel. And people wonder why books of poetry, Job and the Song of Solomon, they've sold hundreds of millions of copies in the Bible. Today, books of poetry don't even sell 20 books, 50, 100, because it's no longer a brilliant talent. Well, to get back to 1 Kings, we meet this woman. We encounter her in this opening narrative. So David was old. They put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants, who are not always the source of wisdom, his servants said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord, the king, and let her stand before the king. Now, he had wives. We find things in the Bible, and people think, well, because it's in the Bible, it must be an example of God's perfect will for these people. If you remember Esther, the book of Esther, the horrific advice given to the king and his despicable behavior where he took hundreds of women and used them to try to find the one he wanted. Just horrifically evil. But many people, because they're confused about what kind of God we have, Christians, they think, oh, God wanted that. No, God can use our righteousness, or our wickedness. But he doesn't want our wickedness. But he does work with the wickedness of men. And so the servants said, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord the king. We'll realize one of his wives is in the story in you know, just a little bit from here. But let's find a young woman and let her stand before the king and let her care for him and let her lie in your bosom that our Lord, the king, may be warm. Now, a service dog would have been a much wiser choice. 
when we see the men that surround great leaders, and even churches could be little fiefdoms, you know, and where the pastor is surrounded by yes men, people pleasers, which is very dangerous. When we see the men that surround great leaders, we often see that they are sycophants, always flattering, never criticizing, never admonishing. I'd like to give a familiar example because one of Dr. James Dobson's friends has just written a somewhat private letter to many Christian leaders around the country. We got it. And he writes of the uh, betrayal of Dr. Dobson at Focus on the Family. But that's not especially what interests me. In this letter, he writes that as he and his wife just took James Dobson and his wife uh, to dinner at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs just a few weeks ago, they were urging him to support personhood, which is a, a great development. Praise God. We hope that will happen. But in this letter, he wrote about men like Jim Daly and Tom Minnery at Focus on the Family who are bureaucrats following lawyers and fundraisers and completely violating God's principles in the process. And when I think about that and these servants of King David, you know, Dr. Dobson had no one around to admonish him. When he made a pledge to God that was made in public and broadcast nationwide on a thousand stations, that he would never again support a politician who would abort even one child. He made that pledge to God. They play it on video in the Welcome Center for years. And then he violated that pledge and said, well, I know John McCain is, you know, he, he supports some abortion, but I'm, I'm going to support him. Now, it's violating your pledge you made to God, which is why Jesus said, don't make a pledge to God. Because usually men break their promises and they lie. And when you make a pledge to God, then it's much worse than just lying to a friend. And so when Dr. Dobson did that, he had no one around him, his servants, to admonish him, nobody. And what that turns into, predictably, as with Israel, is that then focus on the family in turn as a national leadership ministry, never admonished, never rebuked the Christian leaders around the nation who were dishonoring God publicly. Like, I'll give you two examples, Billy Graham and, and Pat Robertson. Billy Graham, for years, put in his Billy Graham Christian Workers Handbook that as Christians, we should support some abortion, including aborting handicapped unborn children and others. He was never admonished by the Christian leaders, only by the personhood community, which all the Christian leadership nationally opposed. That's starting to change. And he was able to get away with that, and then Pat Robertson would publicly defend China's forced abortion program, and he would not be rebuked by any of the leaders of the Christians. It'd be as though we had apostles and prophets, and when people publicly leaders sinned, they all kept their mouths shut. That's what's happened.
And so David, as king of Israel, when his own sons did evil, he did everything he could to look the other way. Like Eli, the priest, whose sons were committing the most horrific of sins right before Samuel is born, and God kills them. And the Bible says that Eli did not discipline his sons. He let them do whatever they did. And so James Dobson is not held accountable by those around him. Focus on the family does not hold accountable those around them. And we see the kind of dynamic that led to the destruction of Israel. And we should not be surprised when we see the destruction of the body of Christ, the moral destruction, the destruction of America. We shouldn't be surprised because the body of Christ should be the anchor on which the moral absolutes are expressed to the world and the body of Christ is confused. So, there had been compromise everywhere and David's servants as sycophants compromised. So these servants, verse 3, so they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. It's like having a Miss America pageant. And found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very lovely and she cared for the king and served him. But the king did not know her. Now, that's not a reference to senility, or it was a big kingdom, you know, you can't know everybody. That's an example of the Bible's thoughtful use of euphemism. What is a euphemism? If you look at the Greek in that word, you could understand it. It's a figure of speech. It refers to something that's harsh or blunt, or it refers to something unpleasant or embarrassing using an indirect word or a mild word. For example, we will speak of someone sleeping as Jesus did. He said, Lazarus sleeps. And the apostles were a little bit dense, so he had to be blunt. He said, Lazarus is dead. So we could say they went to be with the Lord. Um, they passed on. When it's someone you love, respect, it's difficult to say he's dead. He's dead. I remember uh, one of our boys years ago in Sunday school of Bethany Sutherland. She asked, well, what, what do you have to do to go to heaven? And... It was a Dominic in his deep voice. He said, well, first you got to be dead. <laughs> and so he sort of was on the right track, you know. But we like to, we prefer to not say he's dead because we want to be sensitive. We want to be thoughtful. The Bible opens up in Genesis 4 with Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son and they called him Cain. Uh, there's some bizarre Christian group that teaches that Satan was the father of Cain. And it's just bizarre what Christians could get themselves into. 
That's uh, Arnold Murray down in the southeast. Um, and so there are thousands of Christians who are adamant that Lucifer, Satan, was the father of Cain. And the Bible says, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, and they called his name Cain. How could you be more explicit? It's not conceivable to be more explicit. You couldn't be. But a Christian teacher gets an idea that the Kenites are some racially cursed group of people, and he has to trace them to Cain, so he develops this whole false notion. Stop the tape, stop the tape. Hey, we are about halfway through, but we're out of time. If you want to hear the rest, head over to kgov.com, click on the store, and get the First Kings Volume 1 Bible Study. May God bless you.